And please turn to Genesis 45. Understanding reconciliation is vital towards understanding the gospel. When Paul, the apostle, describes his ministry in 2 Corinthians 5, he calls it a ministry of reconciliation. And when he describes his message, he calls his message the message of reconciliation. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is about reconciliation between God and man. If you remember from our time in Genesis, from the beginning, we saw that God made everything good. And when he created man in his own image, he said man was very good. And at first, the beautiful thing was that God walked with man in pure fellowship in the Garden of Eden until the devastating day that Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit in the Garden. You see, in that moment, there was a change between the relationship of God with man. At that moment, separation occurred due to man's sin because a holy and righteous God cannot coexist with sin. But also at that moment when sin entered in, the Bible tells us that wrath began to be stored up against it that a punishment would be needed for sin. Yet what we also see at the beginning of Genesis is that God in his kindness sent man out from the garden and promised a savior. The serpent crusher, as we've called him in one of our series, who would redeem man one day and would reconcile man to God. And all throughout Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament, God repeats and secures this promise through the line of a man named Abraham, which through Jacob eventually becomes Israel. You see, Israel becomes the representation of God's chosen people. And over and over, God shows that nothing will stop his promise to reconcile his people to himself. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21, when speaking of his ministry and message, Paul shows us how this reconciliation has been accomplished, saying, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a beautiful statement. God has reconciled man to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, on the cross of Calvary, Jesus took on our sin so that we might become his righteousness and through that be reconciled to God, be in a right relationship with God, which then leads to God for all of eternity pouring out his love towards us in kindness, working for his people forever. So you can see that reconciliation with God is a magnificently beautiful thing. 
And what the Bible also shows and speaks of often is reconciliation between man and other men. We saw it in the life of Jacob and Esau. And that reconciliation that we see in the lives of people is meant to display, to shine a spotlight on, if you will, for the world to see the reconciliation that can happen with God and man. So as we see Jacob and Esau reconcile back in Genesis, we're supposed to see God reconciling himself to people. As we see this morning, Joseph and his brothers reconcile. It's a picture, it's a foreshadow of God reconciling us to himself. Our passage today has two parallel themes that run through it, almost side by side. It was really hard for me to even decide which one to really focus on. And those themes are reconciliation, which obviously I've talked about a lot already, and God's providence. What is God's providence? The Heidelberg Catechism defines God's providence as the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. You see, what we're gonna see today in our passage is that reconciliation is what is happening, but God's providence is how it is happening. So with that, let's look at Genesis 45. I see this passage separating nicely into three sections. In verses one through 15 is the first where we see forgiveness and reconciliation. If you remember last week, we were in Genesis 44. The brothers have come to Joseph again, and they've been tested again. They've confessed their guilt before God, and Judah puts himself forward as a slave in Benjamin's place. Now look in our passage in Genesis 45, verses one and two, at how Joseph first responds to all of this. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. So how does Joseph respond? We see that he is so overwhelmed with emotion at this point in time that he cannot even control himself any longer. Yet notice that his first cry is for everyone to leave the room except his brothers. Why? Why send everyone out? We can tell from the text that it's not because Joseph is ashamed of his emotions. Verse two says he was weeping so loudly that everyone still heard it. But what I think we see as we begin to unpack the heart of Joseph for his brothers, and what many commentators suggest is that Joseph is more than likely trying to protect his brothers from open shame as he reveals himself to them. Next, notice in verse three how 
Joseph approaches his brothers and their response to him. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. What a heart-piercing revelation. You have just confessed your guilt before this man that you thought was the viceroy of Egypt. And he says, I am Joseph. And then he asks if his father is still alive. That's a strange question to me. I think last chapter, at least like five times, Judah said his father's still alive. It it would seem to me that he's not just asking about the physical life of Jacob, but he's asking how his father's doing. Life and death often in the book of Genesis have to do with how the spirit of a man is, how how, um, lively a person is. So Joseph's showing a care for his father. But what we should really pick up on is the brother's response. Silence and dismayed, the text says. They're speechless. Just imagine for a moment the feelings rushing through their minds. This man is now speaking our language and he says he's Joseph, the one we sold. I'm gonna guess it's a mixed bag. Some astonishment, maybe some confusion. What, what is going on? Probably fear. What's he gonna do to us? You see the tension that's building. What is Joseph going to do now? Consider then in verses 4 through 8 just how Joseph presses into his brothers with forgiveness. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. There is so much to take in with these words in these four verses. Astonishing words. First consider just the gentleness that he approaches them with. He says, come near to me, please. He doesn't stand there and shout. He says, come near to me. And he draws them in with affection. Next, notice that he reminds his brothers of what they did. I'm your brother. You sold me into Egypt. There's no mincing words. They've confessed the guilt of their sin and Joseph acknowledges it. He knows they're guilty. They know they're guilty. They know they're standing before him. What will he say? What will he do? And then comes the most astonishing statement. Verse four, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves 
For because you sold me here, for because God sent me here before you to preserve life. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, don't be dismayed. Don't be distressed. Don't be mad at yourselves. God was the one who sent me here. This was part of God's plan. Look at how he repeats this three times. Verse five, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse seven, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse eight, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times he repeats, God is the one who sent me here. You see what he's saying? He's saying, don't be angry with yourselves or dismayed that you sold me into Egypt because it was God's providence that allowed that to take place to bring me to this point in my life to save the people of Israel. You see, Joseph saw every aspect of his life as being in the fatherly hand of God. Being sold into slavery inside of God's hands. Being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife inside of God's hands. Being imprisoned inside of God's hands. Staying in prison because the cupbearer didn't tell Pharaoh about him inside of God's hands. his interpretation of dreams inside of God's hands, his exaltations inside of God's hands. God sent him to Egypt to preserve life, he says. You see, God knew a famine was coming and God knew the people of Israel would need to be preserved. And so God, in his providence, in his goodness, sent Joseph to Egypt. Yes, the brothers were responsible for their sin. They sold Joseph to slavery. But God in his providence had plans all along to use that sin in order to bring about the preservation of his people. Church, this could take years to fully contemplate. The providence of God is a marvelous truth from scripture. It's a comforting truth. The Proverbs speak of it. Proverbs 16, nine says, the heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. The book of Job attests to it as we see that Satan has to get permission to attack Job. The prophetic books proclaim it and the death of Christ confirms it. Listen to the words of Acts chapter 4, 27 through 28. As God's people are noticing his sovereign hand over their lives. They pray, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
Nothing, church, nothing happens outside of the counsel of God's will. That's providence. And it's on display in this text. And it's on display so that we'll notice what it is that ultimately leads Joseph to forgive his brothers. Did you notice it? It wasn't their confession. Though that moved him, it was Joseph's understanding of the providence of God. Joseph could forgive them because he saw God's purposes through it. Did you know that they have yet to ask for forgiveness from him? He doesn't seem to need it. Their confession of guilt before God seems to be enough and he's ready to forgive because he trusted that God was the one who used it, that God had a plan through it, that God allowed it for a reason. So let me ask you, is there something you are holding on to in your life that you are unwilling to forgive? Is there something that has happened to you that you say, I could just never forgive that person? Maybe you need to shift your thinking off of the circumstance and on to God's hand over your life. Church Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to their purpose. And Genesis 45 shows us that even the sin of others is worked together for good. Do you want to know how to forgive someone? Take a lesson from Joseph's life and set your gaze upon God. See how good he's been to you. Notice his hand on your life. Yet Joseph doesn't just forgive. This is probably the most challenging part for me. He doesn't just forgive, he completes reconciliation. Consider the beautiful reconciliation that takes place in verses nine through 15. Pay close attention. He tells them, hurry up and go down to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds, all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now see with your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. After that, his brothers talked with him. What a beautiful representation of reconciliation. Just note a few things here. Joseph implores them twice to hurry. Hurry, go home and bring everything back. Bring all of your families back. He says, because I will provide for you. He tells them to tell his father, tell my father of everything that the Lord has done. Tell him about how he made me Lord over Egypt. 
and bring him back to me. You see, he moves towards reuniting his family all together and providing for them as God has orchestrated for him to do from the first place. Notice also, though, that Joseph wept on his brothers and kissed them. He wept on his brothers' necks and he kissed them. And then most pointedly, Moses records that his brothers talked with him. Oh, church, this is, this is wonderfully specific by Moses. Look back at Genesis 37.4 quickly with me because I want you to see this. At the beginning of Joseph's life in Genesis 37.4, look at what Moses writes. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. Do you see what's taking place? Hate existed. They weren't even able to speak with him peacefully. Now love, and they are talking. Full reconciliation has taken place. Joseph presses in to love his brothers extravagantly to fully reconcile their relationship. Notice he doesn't say, I can forgive you, but I just can't trust you. He doesn't say, I can forgive you, but I'm not going to be as close to you as I once was. I hope you're challenged by this. How often do we forgive and yet fail to press in to restore a broken relationship? And many times, that's after the person has asked for forgiveness. I'm not saying it's easy to do. Our hearts are so weak and our flesh deceives us so much. But the reconciliation we see here should cause us to think. Think about what the brothers did to Joseph. They threw him in a pit to die. They wouldn't listen to his distress. Then they decided, oh no, it'll be better for us to sell him and make money off of him, still not listening to his distress. Then they told his father, whom he loves, that he was dead and grieved his father. And he seeks to forgive and to reconcile and to provide and to love and to comfort their hearts. It's so challenging to see this. And this is ultimately a picture of God's forgiveness and reconciliation. Alexander McLaren suggests, the first step towards reconciliation, whether of man with man or of man with God, comes from the aggrieved. We always hate those whom we have harmed, and if enmity were ended by only the advances of the wrongdoer, it would be perpetual. The injured has the prerogative of praying the injurer to be reconciled. So it was in Pharaoh's throne room on that long day past, so it is still in the audience chamber of heaven. We love because he first loved us. 
You see, church, God made the first step in love towards his people by sending his son to die for our sins. We were in rebellion against him. And he sent his son to die, to redeem and to reconcile. And the picture here of Joseph reconciling with his brothers foreshadows that forgiveness and that reconciliation that we can have with, ch- with God. It's a beautiful thing. And it also challenges us to be reconciled to others. Because if God can forgive and God can love a sinner like me, who am I not to forgive and reconcile? But we have to move on. Our story's not over. Oddly enough, it gets better. Look at our next section in verses 16 through 24, which shows lavished kindness. All of a sudden, Moses moves to the response of Pharaoh. And notice his response in verses 16 through 24. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father and on their journey. Then he sent his brothers away and as they departed he said to them, do not quarrel along the way. Such a fascinating portion of the story. What's taking place here? I read over and over this, and I just kept thinking, what kindness is being shown to these brothers by Pharaoh? Consider what's taking place. Pharaoh just hears that his brothers are here, and he commands Joseph to bring his whole family back. And twice it's recorded that he says he'll give them the best of the land of Egypt. The first time it's accompanied with the idea of eating of the fat of the land, eating the choicest food, the best of the land of Egypt. And this is two years into a seven-year famine. The second time, it's such an extravagant provision that they're not even told to bring their goods. You won't need them. You'll be so well taken care of. You won't need any of your goods. Leave them behind. What moves Pharaoh to respond in this way? Why so much extravagance and kindness to Joseph's family? I think certainly we should see that he obviously has a keen affection for Joseph. But because of the emphasis right before this, on God making Joseph Lord over the house, 
the ruler of all of Egypt, a father to Pharaoh, we're supposed to be seeing, I think, God's providence providing for Joseph's family. I thought about titling this section, God's Providence Illustrated. He's just lavishing on them kindness, undeserved. You see, Pharaoh seems, he's strangely moved to me to shower the family of Israel with kindness. It doesn't make sense. And then Joseph expands that kindness. He gives them a change of clothes and he showers Benjamin and Jacob with gifts. Think, think about the kindness that's being shown to them and, and how undeserving they are of it. You see, forgiveness of sin might be easy for us to see as possible. They've confessed their guilt after all. But this kind of kindness, that's just crazy, right? Yet, church, is this not how God treats his redeemed? Does he not over and over shower us with kindness? Ephesians 2, 7 says that God saved us and raised us with Christ so that for the purpose of in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, God's grace and love for those he has reconciled to himself overflows in an abundance of kindness, immeasurable, immeasurable abundance of kindness for all of eternity. We're not just reconciled to God. We're not just made right with God. We are now in a relationship where he is working in kindness towards us. But we also see Joseph do one other thing. He tells his brothers not to quarrel along the way. You see, I think that's just a little bit more kindness. He knows the temptations of their hearts. Benjamin's just been given 300 shekels of silver, five changes of clothes. His father's been loaded up with all these donkeys. Maybe they could quarrel about whose idea it was to sell Joseph in the first place. A quarrel about the unequal portions of gifts. And so I think Joseph in kindness encourages them, don't quarrel. Don't quarrel. Look at what God has done. You see, I see God's providence on display as Joseph's family is lavished with kindness. And this brings us to our final section in verses 25 through 28, which shows revival of the heart. You remember Jacob. You remember the state he has been in, almost being brought down to Sheol in despair, Pay close attention to the state of Jacob in verses 25 through 26. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. The brothers arrive home again carrying all these gifts, Benjamin in hand, 
And they say to Joseph, this is Jacob, Joseph is alive and he's the ruler of all of Egypt. But the text says that Jacob's heart became numb. The imagery is that of his heart stopping. He's dead, dead inside, no more feeling. And he's in full disbelief because he doesn't trust them. But then we see something change Jacob's heart. Something changes his mind. What is that? Whenever I'm studying scripture, one of the things I always like to focus on is contrasts. The word but, such a powerful word in scripture. This is what's happening. Notice at the beginning of 27, but it signifies a contrast, a turn, something different than what was just said, so pay attention and look what happens. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. What was it that changed? What took his heart from being stopped to being revived? Notice what the text says. He heard all the words of Joseph. There's an emphasis there. Moses doesn't just say all the words. He says all the words of Joseph, which he had said. It's like, pay attention. Jacob heard all the words of Joseph. Now what's fascinating to me, this is so fascinating. Up until this point, Moses has recorded people saying verbatim things over and over and over again. The brothers like repeat the same story four times through the last chapters and all of a sudden he just says all the words of Joseph. Why doesn't he repeat it all again? I don't know exactly. But I think he wants us to focus on the words of Joseph and we're somewhat left to speculate. But think about it. Wouldn't it have included an acknowledgement that his brother sold him into Egypt. That's part of what Joseph said. But wouldn't it have also included that it was God's plan all along? Wouldn't that have been the emphasis? And that God made him Lord of Egypt? Then Jacob sees the wagons proving Joseph's glory and his spirit is revived. You see, I don't think it's that he finally saw that Joseph was alive, and I think the beginning of chapter 46 is gonna show us this as well, but it's hearing about God's plan and God's providence. Maybe remembering back to how God worked in his life and providence. He was hopeless, he was in despair when he lost his sons. Now he sees that God all along was using that to bring Israel to Egypt. And he says, it's enough. That's all I need to know. No quarreling. No, I can't believe you sold your, son, your brother into Egypt. Let's talk about this for a while. 
It's enough. I'll go be with my son, Joseph. One commentator notes, the two sides of Jacob marked with the shift in his name. Jacob, in verse 26, is marked with weakness and unbelief. In verse 28, Israel is marked with belief and resolve. Israel's heart is revived and ready to trust again in the providence of God. Now, I want you to think about something in preparation for next week. They are in the land of Canaan. What is the land of Canaan? It's the promised land. And he's about to take his family out of the promised land and into Egypt. Let that sink in as you're thinking about what is happening. But with this text, what do we make of it? What do we take away from this passage of Genesis? I think we're supposed to take our clues from those two themes, reconciliation and God's providence. So first, as we previously mentioned, we should be willing and ready to pursue full forgiveness and reconciliation towards others, especially inside of the church. Think again, is there an unrestored relationship in your life? Have you forgiven those who have sinned against you? And are you moving towards them now in full reconciliation? Is that a pattern of your life? Or do you constantly hold grudges and constantly don't forgive and constantly don't reconcile? We can't escape that challenge from this text. We can't. But second, and more importantly, I implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. Last week we saw how we need to confess our guilt before God and we saw that Judah's sacrifice shows us a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice. This week we see the beauty of what happens when we place our trust in Christ and we're reconciled with God. We see that God then moves towards us in lavished kindness So if you haven't yet, see Christ Jesus on the cross for you, bearing your sin. Trust in his blood that was shed there to redeem you and to reconcile you with God. I implore you, be reconciled to God. And finally, For all who know Christ and have trusted in him, or if you in this moment are now ready to trust in him, let me encourage you, trust in the sovereign providence of God. Look at it. It's exuding from the life of Joseph. It's gonna continue throughout the Bible over and over showing that he is in control. Trust in him. Listen to the words of John Calvin. He says, This is a remarkable passage in which we are taught that the right course of events is never so disturbed by the depravity and wickedness of men, but that God can direct them to a good end. And we are also instructed in what manner and for what purpose we must consider the providence of God. So what is that purpose? 
the Heidelberg Catechism says we should study this, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Church, God holds you in his hand. The creator of everything, the sustainer of all of life, holds you in his hand. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing that you're dealing with right now in life is outside of his love. He is there with you, in it, through it, to deliver you from it, to bring you to the day when you are fully reunited, reunited with him, fully made new, where there's no more tears, no more crying. God is working all of it together in his providence by his good fatherly hand. Trust, trust in his faithfulness. Trust in Christ. Trust in him to bring his promises about and to accomplish his plans and his purposes. If you need, confess an unbelief in that and ask for help believing that. Please stand with me as I pray this passage over us. Our Father in heaven, you are almighty. You are good. You are just, you are righteous, you are perfect, you are wise. And so God, I ask that in my frailty to deliver what your word says, that you would speak through that, that you would remind us that you are sovereign over us, that you are faithful forever and perfect in love that you have given us so much by placing the name of Jesus Christ on our heads, calling us your children, and that you're working towards us for all of eternity. Give us hearts to believe. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.